Brother, how are we doing? I'm great. I'm great, bro. How are you? Personally, I'm good. Um, if I think more broadly, I'm tired. I, I've had a, a difficult week looking at the world we live in. Um, I'm upset that we're still having to have some of the same conversations about people's human rights, about people's safety, about people's dignity. And it's highlighted once again a significant need for people like me, people like you, to have our own voice, to, to have influence in the world so that we can make a difference and potentially just better the lives of, of people who have the same experiences as us. I used to speak extensively on these matters and now I'm actually lost for words. And I'm lost for words because I'm questioning whether the words have any impacts. Um, I, I question how we can still, like you said, be having these conversations and these can still be prevalent issues. But it's concerning. And when you look at across the globe, there are trends of it actually increasing in society. Um, parts of Eastern Europe, parts of Africa, where there's clear subordination of certain cultures, races. It's surprising that we're still in this situation. You touched upon something that words are just words, and that's how I feel at the moment. You might remember quite a while ago now, there was a Black Lives Matter protest in the UK. And instead of joining the, the protest, I organized a forum where I could sit down with people who didn't want to protest and wanted to take action. I didn't want to protest. I wanted to take action. And I ultimately believe that the way that we are going to make change in this world for the likes of us and for the likes of other people is by gathering influence, by making sure that the pound in our pocket speaks Definitely. so that people listen. And that means empowering people like me, making sure that they have the tools, the resources, the skills that they need in order to make a change in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why entrepreneurship is so important to me, because I think it helps people get out of situations where they're so dependent on ultimately the generosity of others. I don't want your generosity. I want your respect. Ultimately to get out of the need of systems and structures, feeding them, which some people might argue were never constructed for them. And I don't necessarily want to go down that route, but I agree wholeheartedly that entrepreneurship is crucial just to liberate. And then for the educational piece, because the aim isn't to become better than, it is just to be respected. It is to be seen as an equal. Yeah, that has been the week on a, a less positive note. Uh, let's, let's cheer up the listeners. <laughs> give, give me a positive, please. A positive for the week. What would a good positive for the week be? I, I made brownies yesterday with my fiance. That's my positive for the week. Yeah, you're the reason why we have no flour. Um, it's you bakers. <laughs> See, while my wife is currently baking brownies a lot and she's pretending that it's part of like a ministry that she wants to start after COVID, 
no, it's not. She doesn't want to go out to people to give them brownies. She just wants to have a lot of sugar at home. Um, yeah. To be That's fair, good. my brownies, we weren't stealing your flour. These, these were gluten-free brownies, so I don't even know if you would want any of them. Forgive me. People who bake will be shouted at ignorance. I don't even think there's flour in brownies. Yeah, no, you can have flour in brownies. Oh, yeah. But this is, this is not the uh, cooking show. No. <laughs> this, is, this is a show about business. But um, yeah, if you, if, you want, if you want some recipes, you can DM me. What's your positive, bro? Joanna is walking and starting to talk a little bit, which is amazing. So Joanna's my daughter. Uh, she turned one recently. Um, and she is, yeah, becoming a bit of a madam. She knows what she wants. She can stage the tears on cue, demand whenever she wants. Um, but yeah, she's walking now and she's throwing about her weight. It's very interesting to see because her brother's two years older than her and he's very patient right now, for now. But I know that a time will come when he'll give her a quick one when I'm not looking. Amazing, amazing. And this period with all of its challenges, just gives people like us the opportunity actually to sit back and enjoy this time. And I think that even though there's been a lot of tragedy during this time, the, the opportunity just to really get some good quality time with your kids at this young age, we may never get it again. So we need to just no, lap it up. We may not. And our guest today has spent quite a bit of quality time in a very beautiful environment. We need to to talk about it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Expensive Lessons, episode 10, which means that we have been on lockdown in quarantine for 10 weeks. Uh, Hope you've enjoyed what we've managed to produce over the last couple of weeks through some of the audio challenges, through some of the interesting perspectives and some of the even more interesting guests. And today we really have an amazing guest for you. this is somebody who is actually one of my best friends and I may be a little bit biased when I say that his insight is absolutely vital to my success as an entrepreneur and as a, a business owner. Uh, he's a former housemate and just somebody who embodies entrepreneurship. When I graduated university, I went to a nine to five and worked for a big corporation. He went straight into being a business owner. And during this period, he has served thousands of people at Carnival, but even some high profile guests in big corporate offices as part of his catering business. Uh, so without further ado, and well, actually one other point, when uh, he asked me to, to uh, introduce him, he said, please don't go overboard. Please tone it down a little bit. And I said, obviously, uh, but honest, honestly, you guys are in for a spectacular um, uh, treat right now because this person's insight is 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 really valuable, and um, yeah. Without uh, further ado, Mike, uh, welcome to Expensive Lessons. Ah, uh, thank you for having me, um, Abi and Afalabi. Thank you so much. I feel quite honoured to be um, a part of your um, podcast. I don't think I've ever been a part of a podcast before, um, but yeah. Without all those caveats, I, I'm just a, a business business owner. Um, trying to make a living and trying to do something good in society, I guess. Um, 
But it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I hope um, people find use in, in the things that we discussed today. And yeah, hopefully people can learn something from, from what I have to say and from my experiences. No pressure. I love the humility. Um, and we really need a round of applause button. Like we need something just to introduce people because I don't think people realize who we have on right now. Um, like Abby says, this is a very dear friend of both of ours. Um, when I mean dear, I don't mean it just in the business world. I mean, this is someone who has been a groomsman at my wedding, will be a groomsman at Abby's wedding. Um, it's a lifelong partner and someone who I owe a great deal of our business's success to. Um, if you've ever read the book, Think and Grow Rich, and you ever came across that concept of mastermind groups, is someone I reach to for that knowledge and the success since has just been exponential. So I'm going to be blessed today. I think I might make a few notes because I'm going to sit and listen. Um, but yeah, welcome aboard, Mike. Hi, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, again, it's an absolute to be a part of a part of this podcast, like I said, and I hope with with the topic of insight into um what i what i do and what i've i've been doing and you know just find some some tips in terms of helping them with their business too well let's let's dig into it well first of all i've kind of kept kept the mystery uh about the business uh still still there so t- tell us about your business t- tell us what you do tell us uh how long you've been doing it for and yeah by all means to give us some background okay so i i run a uh, a manufacturing business so i manufacture jamaican patties in southeast london um we've been doing that since 2012 we set up but uh, just a prerequisite my dad had a, a small caribbean takeaway uh, your typical Caribbean takeaway that you'd see around Southeast London. Um, but at the back, we had a small bakery where we actually did things like um, harder bread, uh, bullers, bun, and just other Caribbean pastries, uh, maybe things like drops, uh, gizada, things that people probably are not familiar with unless you're Caribbean. And then we did all sorts of cakes like carrot cake, banana cake, and uh, rum cake, and those kind of things as well as serving um, Jamaican food at, at the front of the shop. And, uh, and that was, we, we took that over in 2008. And throughout college, I, I, worked, um, I worked there after college uh, on Saturday mornings. I'd, I'd worked there. And when I started uni, uh, I, I would go back in the summer times when I had time because I also worked in an investment bank. And when I had time, I'd help my dad. And we started doing deliveries. And where I worked on the delivery route, I would start to see what was happening, and especially with bread, because we delivered bread. And we did patties, but not that much patties. But we had it, probably like maybe 10 people that we supplied patties to. Um, but I realized that the bread business was dying um, because what was happening to hard dough bread is such a heavy product that many people would switch to sliced bread and people switch into um, wholemeal bread as well. And so hard, hard dough bread wasn't as popular. And we found that a lot of, um, of uh, business owners, so even the, the shop owners themselves, 
they were getting into this bread making where they'd find Caribbean guys who could make bread and essentially um, have it in their in their local shops, corner shops, and we were essentially losing shelf space. So it never really made sense to carry on with with the bread business. And Patty seemed to have been doing okay, and it kept going. And it was essentially what was holding the business business up, apart from the takeaway side. The patties seemed to be doing well. Um, and I think after two years, so 2010, 11, actually, me and my dad started talking about trying to make make something out of the patty business. And it, it was just always in the making about um, trying to have a patty business but it seems so difficult to just have one product and make a business out of it because here we were doing over 10 products um in the bakery as well as food and thinking that we were going to do one one product and turn it into an entire business uh, was just beyond us um so it wasn't until 2012 when um it was my final year of uni and we we started talking about this more and we sort of had a consultant on board kind of creating a, a business plan and coming up with the ideas of how to upscale what we're doing in a small, tiny bakery into a, a, a factory, essentially, and which would mean bigger equipment and, and, and things like that, more people, um, and just maybe a, a better system in terms of making it work. And uh, we ended up getting getting a building, getting a building for... Um, uh, for the factory and it was just an empty shell um, in southeast London and we needed to to do a lot of work to turn it into to make the space a manufacturing space so we spent a lot we spent four months doing that which we didn't we didn't um, perceive initially and that was probably the first thing we came across and in our well let's 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 take a step back um, a little okay. bit so what was the catalyst for you to actually turn a single product within um, your, your, your current catering offering into a key focus for its own independent business line? Uh, again, if you, if you remember, uh, we, we had things like Olympics, um, 2012 Olympics, and I think when Usain Bolt was at his peak, both 2008 and 2012, it was, it was at its peak. And um, there was just so much hype around Jamaica and just the Caribbean as a whole. And uh, I actually did a, a master's thesis around uh, establishing a business in the UK, like a patty, a patty business. And I found that there's so much uh, emphasis around um, ethnic food um, and most noticeable, noticeably Caribbean food. And if you went in the supermarkets, they start to have these world food sections. So Caribbean food and just other ethnic foods were just on the rise. And like I said, the bread business wasn't doing well. And it just came apparent to me that patties were a more viable product. And when doing my research, I started to find big, big players in, this, in the business who were supplying supermarkets and that was enough for me to know that, okay, there is a market there that we could supply to. And these companies were only doing one product. And I thought if they could do it, I could do it. Um, they were a lot older. Um, and I used to refer, I used to refer to them as old school. And I thought I'm new school. I should be able to do this. 
and and that that's what kind of pushed me pushed me to do it actually okay and so you had this idea that there was a key opportunity here to provide something that the 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 city is screaming out for which is quality caribbean uh, a quality caribbean experience and one thing that ties in with uh the caribbean is the food and you knew that you could reach an audience who are very diverse already by providing them with part of the caribbean experience now i know for a fact that one of the busiest days of the year for you and your business is carnival so just yes, correct. Give, so so just give it to give us an idea um during the carnival period how many patties are you selling oh wow uh yeah we manufacture about 30,000 patties um during nottingham carnival um which it, it it's 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 a lot of work it's the busiest time of the year um and we, even though we have cold rooms we have two big cold rooms in our in our factory um we actually have to order a third cold room so a cold room and this is i did this the last two years so before we had enough space with one cold room and then um we then got a, a second cold room installed which we never knew we were going to be using sort of full time and then the last two years ago we realized that this is this is just not enough and i found companies that could just come and build a cold room in about an hour in your in your in your space and then you hired it for however long you wanted and then they'll pick it up um, when you're done. So we had to hire, hire a, a third cold room and it, you could just see growth as, as we went on over the years because the cold room alone could show you what we're doing. But it, it's a time where we get extra staff in and we, we have to do double shifts essentially for, for most of the week. Um, we, we sometimes we'll start from the Sunday before all the way back to the following Sunday um, and then after when all the, the patties are actually made, I'm left to get them sold because you get people to buy patties the day before carnival or on the day of carnival, but carnival will last for two days. So once people are sold out, um, they'll come back between 10 PM and 3 AM in the morning, coming back to buy patties for the, for the, for the final day. Um, so it's a, it's a really busy period. So I have to spend my bank holiday instead of actually going to carnival. I spend my bank holiday sleeping after having <laughs> such a busy time of the year. One lesson I'm taking from this is the importance of knowing your most profitable item. Um, previously, yeah. we've spoken about um, the importance of being lean, and we've commented on Steve Jobs and his return back to Apple and how he like, streamlined their products. So I'm just hearing that once again repeated by you that actually you looked at the different products offerings and you realize that the patties was the thing which was the, the best and most viable product for you to take and to really focus on so i think that's a great lesson for all of us who are product providers yeah that's that's very true i think when you have uh, a number of offerings um you, you have to, it's important for you to assess what's worthwhile and, and, and what and what isn't and um again i, I was lucky to i was pretty focused at the time when I was on the delivery route um, for my father, uh, just seeing what was happening in the, in the small Asian shops and seeing how they were dominating the shops themselves. Um, so I could see that we're losing shelf space 
And one of the key things about the industry, uh, bakery industry, um, is a sale and return business. So if, if someone doesn't sell your bread, you have to take them back and you replace them. So you could go out uh, at any given, on any given day, you think you've sold 100 bread, and three or four days later, you go back and 50 of those bread that you sold, um, or say seven days later, because that's a shelf life. So seven days later, you go back and half the bread hadn't been sold. So you have to replace place the bread with 50 bread. So you've actually sold 50 when you thought you sold 100. And I felt that, that, that going forward, that wasn't a business that could last where you'd never really know how much you sold depending on what the demand was like. As, and at the same time, losing shelf life. So I knew those products, uh, that bread as a product wasn't going to last. But patties, it was a sort of direct sale product. And people, people loved it. And it was a snack and it was a fast fast snack um, food on the go and it's a staple product in, in Jamaica so I thought if it was a staple product here it could be a staple product in the UK and it was very similar to a Cornish pasty as well so people could familiarize themselves with the product um, so yeah it's important to see what's making you money and what isn't and um, if there isn't a demand for something or or if you're doing something that costs you a lot of time and, and money it's probably not worth and pursuing and that's why we, we we switched to patties only and eventually we actually got rid of uh, my dad had that 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 bakery as i mentioned before and another uh, shop that he did and eventually we started to focus so much on patties that we just um, branded ourselves as uh, the specialist in providing jamaican patties so whenever people um want patties they just think of flake bake and they know that you know, we're, we're the best in, around for patties in Southeast. So we know your, your business is a, a successful one now, um, but there must have been some initial analysis in order for you to determine whether to actually dig into this business and proceed with building up a, a, a patties business. What were your business goals initially and how did you initially build your your view of actually this is a business that i want to delve into well you kind of touched on it um you touched on it initially when you said giving people a taste of the caribbean and part of the caribbean so it was uh my my goal was to try and get people to understand that in order to have what's called a, a good patty you don't have to fly all the way to jamaica on a holiday to have have a good patty and, and a lot of people who knew a Jamaican patty who'd been abroad felt like every every patty they had in the UK wasn't as close to what they get in Jamaica. And um, we had, uh, so my dad had one or two guys who had worked in patty companies in Jamaica since they were young. So these are old school veterans that made patties by hand and worked in the big names in Jamaica, like, Juicy B for mothers, um, and they so they really knew the thing. So, if essentially we just needed to give them access to this market, and they could make the patties, and we can get people to try it. And so our goal was really to get people to to try these patties that we were making, and get them to realize that we can get them to have patties without traveling to Jamaica. And that's essentially how we built our name. People felt these were the best patties, that exactly if not sometimes better than the ones in Jamaica. And if we could get people to, to believe that, then we knew that we could 
build a, a, a reputable business that people could respect. Um, so that was, that was our, our, our initial goal. And I guess ultimately we wanted to become one of those people that were supplying maybe supermarkets and things like that. But as I went on, I started to realize what the reality of that, of that actually looks like. Understood. And um, in terms of your, your scaling up, so you, you kicked off with a, a, a brief kind of overview of some of the challenges that you saw. So finding this building and building it up into something which could support the size of the business now. Can you talk us through some of the steps that you had to take going from a, a small bakery at the back of a normal uh, catering uh, offer to its own standalone um, manufacturing hub yeah there, there were a number of challenges uh, I, I think from on paper everything always looks amazing so you do the numbers and um, your calculations and you think oh yeah definitely this I just need to be able to produce this much and of course there's so many um, shops around and we're going to look for different markets and the people are already there so as long as we go and bring them the product we're definitely going to be big um but it wasn't like that in in reality and um so as i mentioned before finding the building was was an issue because we know we needed a lot of space um and we couldn't have a building that was already necessarily built up unless it was already a bakery but otherwise we'd need to get an empty shell and so we we went off looking online and just going to viewings for commercial properties um that one had the space and the space we have is is 2000 square feet which is it's a good size to start off with um and then it was about trying to understand what the requirements were and that's probably one of the biggest things so the the legal requirements in terms of setting up a food business versus just uh, having a, a small takeaway shop so when I say food business, I think I, I need to say specifically manufacturing business because the requirements for manufacturing um, are very different from uh, just the takeaway. So they're a bit more strict because uh, a takeaway is food being sold immediately and for manufacturing, you're, you're delivering to, to the masses, so a lot much wider audience and also you're selling food chilled which has to be stored uh, properly and things like that. So, for example, we needed to ensure that the van we then had uh, was now a refrigerated van as opposed to a normal van that we used to use to deliver bread. Uh, so we had to uh, find that kind of van. And I learned that the insurance for these kind of vehicles were very different from just a normal, um, a, a normal vehicle. Uh, the equipment, uh, like I said, sometimes even getting some of the equipments in the building was a struggle because some of like six, for example, the, the, the oven is, is, uh, it's on five levels. So we have five sets of oven. So we had to try and get the oven flat to get it into the building because of the height of it and things like that. So we struggled to get, uh, equipment in, uh, finding new people as well, because we're, we're working in, in the niche market and because we're making handmade products we also had issues finding people that could actually make make the product or because my myself i didn't make i didn't make patties so we needed to find people that had some idea of, of making patties or just had enough commitment and interest 
to stand in a bakery and, and spend 10 hours making a product by hand. Um, and, it, and that's not easy to find. And especially as a small business as well, um, any small business owner will find um, that it's a struggle to find um, employees. Um, and in terms of the final thing I've mentioned in terms of scaling up is getting, getting the ingredients um, right or the recipe right. Um, because you start off and you're kind of just, you've asked the guy, can you make patties? Yes, you can. And they will make the filling to their own kind of desires. And then again, with the pastry, they made it to their own desires. But now you wanted to create something that, you know, regardless if you're there or not, it would taste the same every time. And as opposed to if you find someone else, they're going to make it their own way. So that was a challenge. That was probably the biggest challenge. Um, and we, we had to, we spend months, months and months and months. Even when we were up and running, we were still uh, chopping and changing and changing the recipe around until we stopped getting certain complaints and people were happy with the product. And um, now I can tell you that how, how we make the filling or the, 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 the combination of seasoning and spices that go in into the, um, the filling only me and my dad knows it. And it just, it's just before we had it written down. And then once we spent months and months uh, kind of rectifying it and getting it to how we wanted, we just ripped everything up and it's just in both our heads. <laughs> I love it. Um, in terms of compliance, you mentioned that you had to comply to food laws and I'm sure that's British uh, laws and EU laws as well. What, in your opinion, has been the most challenging law or ruling that you've had to comply with and how have you addressed it um one of the things that i think we we really struggled with was paperwork so here we have uh, a group of of eight guys who um really are really good we, we didn't have eight people at the start but um we had a group of people that were really good at, at making, making the product. And uh, a lot of them were in their forties, um, probably not, not as academic because they work in manufacturing, um, but they're really talented and, and they know the product inside out. However, when it came to paperwork, one, they weren't prepared for that. And two, they weren't actually interested in it. Um, so I had a, a, an issue of saying, okay, when you, you bake the product, I don't want you to just bake it. Before you bake it, I needed to note down the time you put the product in. I needed to note, time, note down what time you took it out out the oven. I also needed to note down what the temperatures were. Um, and that kind of stuff slowed work down. And for a while, I had to go around the factory doing all these different paperwork. So we're doing this on the filling section where in the, in the kitchen where filling was being made. We're doing this in the production section where the product was being baked, as well as doing this when the product was being packaging. Um, so we had that and I was run, literally running around the bakery trying to get this done until um, I had to employ someone later on that, that could do this. Um, so managing paperwork, uh, and it, it's so important because if someone was to, go ill or if there was a product problem with uh, with the product the only way you can trace it is by proving that you are at each time you're documenting the process so it really does start from the beginning even i told you 
what happens in the middle. But from the point of uh, what what time the um, you had the delivery for uh, minced meat, uh, what temperature did you store it at? When did you use it? Um, the temperature you cooked the minced meat at. All that. So it starts from the actual delivery of the goods, all the way to the finished product to you actually delivering the product to the customer, the fight at the, the end user, where you also record what temperature you handed over those finished patties to a customer. Um, and so that was a, a big thing to get used to, just documenting your process all the way. And a part of that was actually employing a, a food scientist as a consultant that could document our entire process and help us create all the um, all the paperwork that we needed for each step of our process, uh, and that that was a uh, that took a long time. That took a very long time, and you know there are times when if if the environmental health officer came and they felt like the, the filling went at the right temperatures, um, the two occasions actually we had to chuck thousands of pounds of filling away because they felt like the temperatures weren't at the right standard that it needed to be. So we lost that quite a bit. And that was a quite, that was a stressful time in business because here you were thinking all I needed to do is make the product taste good. And even though we had proof, we had sent the, the products to the lab and we had a one week shelf life on the product um, on a day-to-day basis, you needed to have documentation showing you, what you're doing every day and it was important because it was needed for due diligence in case something had gone wrong so that was something we, we didn't actually have on it um and it's called a HACCP system um and that you need to any food business or manufacturing business food manufacturing business needs to have a, a HACCP system to help them manage the production of food safely um all our staff have been trained. They, we all have to be trained to level two. Your supervisor trained to level three in, in food safety. And myself as a business operator trained to level three in food safety. Um, but again, these are things that as I went on, I, I had to improve on. Um, but now we're used to it. I guess if someone comes into a workplace now to work within uh, two days of starting, they will have done food safety training and, um, online because we now do this online the first time because it, it was so important i had to get a consult a different consultant in to come and train everyone properly in the way they needed to be trained on site which cost me quite a bit so this was one of the the challenges in terms of compliance but i i, I regularly keep keep track of changes for example where labeling changing changes took place um, a couple of years back. So in terms of allergens, you have to have allergens in, in, in bold, um, highlighted in bold uh, and things like that, rather than putting them separately on, on labels. So yeah, things like that, I, I'm so, always so up to a, speed with. A whole bunch of pains, clearly. Well, yeah, <laughs> on, comp- on compliance side of it. Yeah, you have to, you have to be on top of it because you don't, uh, environmental health officers are like, I see them as food police. They, the police can't necessarily come and ask me to close my factory, but an environmental health officer could get you closed if they don't feel like you're up to the standard. And, and now uh, we have a very high rated, uh, I think, in terms of food, um, you know, selling food, you have to, you've got one to five star, and we've got five star. So um, it just tells me that we're documenting properly and we have all the stuff that we need in place in place. Well, 
what what I can tell based on what you shared is that you clearly know your environment well, um, and you've gone through a lot of pain to get there from kind of testing and adjusting the offering, testing and adjusting your process in order to get to a point where it works well for, for you. Um, so what I would ask you, and Afalabi, I'd like to, to get you involved in this discussion as well for more of a back and forth, is what do we think that entrepreneurs in the food and catering industry need to know in order to scale their business? So whether that is um, their, their, their offering or whether that's their approach, what lessons can, can we provide for people interested in that space? And I think I'll start off by saying that it's very important to understand the laws that you need to comply with. And from what you've shared, before you even build out exactly the the process, you need to know what compliance laws you need to adhere to before making some of those decisions. Would that be fair? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I think compliance is absolutely crucial. So uh, you have to even register your food business 28 days before you operate. And I, I had the premises. So when, when I registered, I, I didn't actually start operating and they didn't come and inspect my, my building. So by the time I actually started operating, I had registered a long time. And then when I started operating, they came a, a lot later. So this is why, and I think they came two months afterwards. So this is why when they came to check, I didn't have all the things in place and I started to um, get things done um, afterwards. And they everything that they... Do, I had to do it within 28 days, which was a very short time when you're trying to manufacture and trying to solve the problems. And during this time, I was actually still doing my master's, trying to do my master's, get the problems solved um, without you know, being shut down, as well as operating the business. Um, so that I would say that's key. But there's a number of other things that you have to consider I, I mean the first thing i would say you need to consider is financing if you're if you're trying to upscale you you have to make sure you, you have somewhere whether it's a bank loan or um investors um we had a family family member who who invested um in our business initially as well as uh we took a lot of resources from the existing business to put that together to help us to go into the new, new business and even then we realized that the 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 revenue that we're making every single thing went back into the business so we couldn't get paid uh, neither me and my dad were, were being paid when, when we just started because there were so many especially on the compliance side there's so many things that i'm having to put in place i'm getting consultants in i'm doing more training than i thought i needed to do so you just had to keep keep pumping money back into the business um also, how you're going to get, get in, you know, the customer base is there. You think that, okay, there's this many um, takeaways, so they're going to need my product. Yeah, they might need it, but you need to get out to them. So, again, we had to pay someone who literally went out and did, did um, sales and marketing for us. And after a while, for example, we found that we're paying so much money to, to this person and giving away so much product. To, for people to sample that it, it starts to make less sense to do that. But at what point do you try and understand 
the worth of the salesperson, the sales and marketing person. Um, and, and it got to the point where we felt that this isn't, this isn't worth it for us. So in the midst of scaling, we had to try and cut back on costs because our budgets were just, just wasn't in line. So that was a key thing for us, just um, um, finding customers. And I guess if you're doing, if you're doing deliveries in terms of manufacturing and doing delivery, um, you have to get your, your logistics correct. So because I was working when we were delivering bread in, on a smaller basis beforehand, I had, I'd, I'd seen what a delivery route should look like or how it can work. And so I essentially created a, a, a massive, uh, a massive circle around South, South London as it, as it were. And then said, I'm going to run a system where I just do a big loop every day and whoever wants patties on that loop um, can be a part of our system. And if someone came on that wasn't on that loop, either myself or I'd get someone else to do it. But what I did, I made sure the, the loop was so wide that it almost felt empty initially. And over the years, we, kept, we just kept expanding on that, on that loop that we do. And yeah, we started off doing four or five days and now we just do uh, six days a week. And sometimes we, we do a small delivery on a Sunday. So where we, we, you know, we just keep expanding on that loop. And uh, I guess in between that, I've had to, even me and my dad, we help, you know, a lot more because the route just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So you need to create a route or delivery system that works. And we've created one that works very well for both us on our customers and ensure that people get their product on time which is which has been a key part of our success just being able to turn up when you say you're going to turn up and having the product when people need it so i, I want to bring afalabi in here for for just a moment but around that just so i understand what you're saying is that you designed a route that you would focus on and you were looking for customers in that in that specific route is, is that correct so you looked yes, at an area because, and you, you limited yeah, it you to had that to, area you, that's correct because you have to well i believe you have to be realistic about your 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 goals and aspirations so you if you if you think you want to be maybe the number one in the entire uk you need to ask yourself how many um vans do i need to have on the road to get to you know all these different regions in the uk if i want to be number one um i need for example there's no point trying to um trying to penetrate birmingham for example because the the biggest patty supplier dominates birmingham whereas in the southeast they're not as big and the competition i had in the southeast i felt like i could beat them because our product was better so i i focused a lot on the southeast and after the southeast i started to look to towards um east and and east london and north london because Again, when we did bread, I noticed a number of um, kind of businesses that did sell patties or would would like to sell patties, but they don't have um, supplies in, in in those areas. So then I started to penetrate those areas after. Um, so you have to be realistic um, okay. of how many you know people you can reach out to, and I, I don't like to make um, false promises. So with that, there are a couple key lessons that I can take away from that. So the first one that I will talk about is defining your route to market and defining your mark your target market 
Um, I completely agree that there is no value in trying to boil the ocean with a new product or service. It's best to identify your niche and build a offering for that specific niche. So you looking at South London, East London it, as, as a focus, I think is the exact uh, right way of doing it. And I think that's a key lesson for anybody listening to this, which is identify your niche and target that niche because there are enough people in your niche to sustain you. You don't need to be the number one in the country in order to be successful. So I completely agree with that point. The other point which you made, which was almost implicit in your comments, was the value of knowing who your competitors were. You looked at Birmingham and you went, there is a key player in Birmingham who is pretty much sewn up that market. That doesn't mean that you won't be able to penetrate that market at some point. But right now, is it the best, best time for you to be focusing all of your eggs in a place which is very difficult to penetrate? So those two points there, I think, are very valuable. Um, Afalabi, any, any points that you want to add? Oh, they are brilliant. I, I concur with the law of timing. Um, I also concur with his ability to optimize logistics. That, um, that strategy session of actually drawing a circle around potentially even the M25 and deciding on your route and choosing to maximize all of the opportunities within your locality first is a valuable lesson for all of us product providers. Um, I like the fact that you, you almost embodied many of the do it now, lean versus agile podcast lessons in that. You went to friends, family, and fools in terms of funding. You compounded, which was crucial. Um, you're now doing 30,000 on the weekend, but there, was a bit of, there would have been a time when you and your dad, as you mentioned, had to actually reinvest all of your profits back into the business to sustain the business. I think often there are many instances where we can be very idealistic as entrepreneurs and believe that we'll be paying ourselves straight away, and that isn't necessarily the case. Um, wholesale training, that's a lesson I took. The fact that although it was very expensive to get that in consultant in, you actually have that consultant work with your entire team in your setting, which is really, really valuable, I think, because then it's just ensuring that the new lessons and behavioral habits are being really rubber stamped in the environment they'll be working in throughout. And last for me, the iterations and your systems and structures, the fact that you continue to ensure that each step of the process was systemized. So irrespective of who did it, you had the same end result. And I think that is crucial for all of us product providers, even if we're not necessarily adding as much value to the product as you are, um, i.e. I might be selling a pair of trainers, I might not be adding ingredients to the trainers. I still want to that each step of the offering, the delivery process, the customer service is quality assured. And yeah, it's mm. brilliant, thank you. Um, so one really, sticking point for me something that really interested me while you were talking mike was the fact that you perfected your recipe and then ripped it up so that it lives only in uh you and your your co-founders heads i think that's very interesting and my question is around how you went about perfecting that recipe so what steps did you take from getting your recipe up to a point where you thought this is what we need to be offering. This is perfect. Uh, it's, when I said it was uh, difficult, I meant for me, I think it was more time consuming because the things we did were pretty simple. You just had um, 
again, you rely on maybe initially people you know, and then also just give it to random samples to people. And you literally just send someone out, get them to taste a product, which one's better. So you do a lot of um, either focus group or just tasting sessions where people just trying the product. And you have maybe two or three different types of product. One with a bit of one thing in there, one with less or something, or one of nothing, nothing of a particular uh, item or spice in the, in, the, in, the, in the product. And then you just start to collect feedback. And also as change in taste um, carries on, people change in taste, then you know, one of the things we never used to do was a vegan patty. And over time, people wanted a vegan patty. So we, we worked on something with that. Um, so it was a lot of, trial and error and also i used to buy a lot of what if if a brand came on the market or another place is making patties i'd go and buy the patty and just see what they're doing and make sure whatever we did what, what um was better so if people ever really paid attention i'd always have a different uh, i would always have my competitor's product in my fridge just to make sure i was keeping up with what they were doing um, yeah because i can't have i can't get access to their their factory so um I, i'll never know but i can buy their product i can look at the ingredients on the back and see what they're doing so i, I was always paying attention to to what people were doing and what who was coming into the market so that was helping me to to kind of alter my taste to make sure it was nothing like what they were doing um but that, that is a very crucial thing in terms of scaling your business having having a, a, a recipe and you know exactly what it is and if, so if someone goes um and another person came in you know the recipe doesn't change the quality and the standard of the product stays the same and then you, you, you transfer that into the actual manufacturing process you try and find uh or streamline your business to make it as lean as possible you remove a lot of waste out of the production process and then ensure that you know, you're, you're utilizing and maximizing the skill of each individual within that team and you have them where they're supposed to be in the, in the production process. Otherwise, you can, you can just spend a lot of time um, doing things, but not as well. And that, took, that took, um, took a couple of years as well where we had people working and they were just in the wrong, wrong role. Um, we had to swap people around. We just had to swap them around because, and how these things happen. Someone was off sick today and someone took that role, but you just noticed the product was that bit different or the finishing time was that much better. And then that's, that's essentially how you learn. You learn, so like I said, from the recipe, you, you, you do tasting sessions or you get people to try it or you listen out to complaints as well. And yeah, you just pay attention, you observe. And it was the same in terms of improving the production process you just saw what happened and what worked and what didn't work and then yeah you, you make the changes as you go along um, and that was quite vital i love how you started that say, statement with this was quite simple actually and, and just it's <laughs> because <laughs> well, well, the actual approach you, you took is it, it if you're at home and you're cooking something if you want to improve on it just get other people to taste it what i what i never did I never, I never took things to my own liking because I'm a pretty bland person, especially when it comes to actual spice, like hot food. I, I don't even eat spicy food, so I, I couldn't be a taster. I wasn't very good in tasting um, my own product because it, every time it felt too spicy for me. So 
I'd always get other people to try it. And, and a lot of people would say, put more spice, put more spice. And I thought, if I try this product, I'm just going to die. So, um, yeah, I, I always got people to try it, um, which I didn't think that was hard. But it was just the combining the spices, doing the maths and putting the spice, the, the amounts together. That, that part was a headache because if someone said it's too much salt, you ask yourself, how much do I need to take out? And you can't, you can't afford to make a, a, a bad batch of this thing because you're going to make 1,000 of any given patty tomorrow. So you can't afford to, to just mess up the whole, whole flavor in because you're going to have to chuck 1,000 patties away. I mean, we did, there are times we had to chuck patties away, but not 1,000, but there are times we had to, we just got it wrong. So it was trial and error more than anything. What, what I love about your approach is that it is customer-centric and customer-driven. Now, I've said in the past on this podcast that I'm a big fan of Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. And <laughs> it's very formulaic, the TV show. It always starts the same, where the, t- where the restaurant owner says, my, my business is struggling and I have no idea why. The food is fantastic. And Gordon Ramsay sits down and the first thing he does is samples some of the food on the menu. And he always says the same thing. This is trash. And the thing that I love is the sense of delusion that these people have when they're serving their meals to him. They're like, you, I can't understand why he doesn't like it. It's fantastic. While, they're, while he's uh, tucking into a raw piece of chicken, they're going, I just don't get <laughs> it. Um, and what, what you've highlighted is, although to you, this seems like second nature, because a lot of us have businesses very close to our heart, we take offense when people provide criticism to our products, our services, because they're not criticizing the product, they're criticizing us. Now, the, the art of a successful entrepreneur, the art of a successful business person is to not be bitter, but to not also take that stuff to heart and understand that this is all valuable data that I can use to improve my product. So for instance, if this was the Mike uh, Williams catering service and it was the aim was to serve a million Mike Williams, then your patties, as you even said yourself, would be bland. But your aim yeah. is to serve as <laughs> your aim is to serve as many people as possible. So you did a lot of things in order to make sure that your patties were the best in the market. You did competitor analysis. You did espionage. You went and um, bought your competitors' patties, put them in the fridge, sampled them, look at the ingredients. You did A-B testing where you had two different patties, one with a slightly different recipe to the other to see which one people preferred. You looked at market trends and said, well, vegan diets are becoming more common now so it's important that we actually address that by providing a vegan option these things all sound second nature but i want to share those points as anybody to anyone listening as absolute gold in order to refine your product you need to look at your competitors you need to look at your customers and you need to look at the market as a whole and by looking at those three things together you can consistently refine your pal- your your products to make sure that you're addressing it for the widest possible audience. So really valuable there. Afalabi, any thoughts? Well, as you've shared all the golden nuggets people need to really hear about, Mike, do you want to start a food consultancy company? 
because I, I think we could sell this. And and I, do you know what? I've, I've thought about consulting. I've really thought about consulting because a lot of small food business, especially when it comes to um, compliance and paperwork, a lot of them struggle. They don't get that five star that they need. It's purely because they don't understand the paperwork or they feel like it's too much. So I always feel like I, 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 I'd love to go into these establishments and show them that you can work around, you know, you can go around, go about your day manufacturing or making food as well as get the paperwork done. Um, it, is a, it is a mindset. You have to have a, a mindset that allows you to do it. And when you're just focused on products, you don't necessarily have it, but you have to think about the end goal and, and what you're trying to achieve. Um, so I, I always feel like I want to um, go into consulting and, and really help these businesses because I've seen it work and how it's worked for us. So um, yeah, it, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to expand on. I believe one of your strengths is the fact that you never got high on your own supply. And often in the world of business, entrepreneurs can be artists and they can be, as Abby mentioned, so fixated on their own produce that they believe it's great. But because you were never almost in love with the product that was for the masses, you were willing to interrogate how it should be presented best for them. So it wasn't about you and your art and your business, but it was about getting the best possible product to meet customers' preferences and getting that to them quickly within your locality. And I think that in itself was brilliant. Yeah, I think that one interesting thing um, when you mentioned that is, um, this is why I big myself up a bit, is when I was supplying um, Levi Roots patties, um, there's certain things that we kind of had to do just to make sure we were giving them the patties how they wanted it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm always prepared to make some, some kind of adjustment for, for the person as long as it's, it's worth for a while. And, um, and I was, I, that was, that was the first time in a long time where, where I, I looked at the product in slightly differently to ensure that it was going to, you know, certain type of people that they had, they, they had uh, about a 400% markup on the product. So it had to look slightly different or, you know, taste slightly different. So we, we made a few changes there. Um, I guess for, for my dad, my dad is um, who, you know, my business partner, he's, he's very much, he loves his product. He, he absolutely loves the product itself. So he doesn't necessarily like changes, especially when we've got something that works. But I've always been nudging him saying, you know, if this is what people like, let's make it because, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, they're the ones buying it, they're the ones eating it. So, yeah, there's, there's always room for improvement, I think. Um, so I'm never kind of fixated on this is the best product and it can't change. There's always room for improvement. And over the years, we've had some really good um, people in our team that, that have always tried to make the product better than where we think it, it can go. They, they, they've just they've just been incredible and because all we're doing is making that one product you know, it only gets better it, it it's just amazing how how well um they can they can make this product by hand every day and and improve on it so much even after seven years that's great to hear um and it also highlights the the value of having a passionate team um and and no doubt that's a result of you providing 
significant leadership and a, a vision that people can all get involved in and feel like they're part of a journey. They're part of a, a organization that they, 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 they are proud to be part of. I, I want, want to, to close out. I could, we could talk about this forever. And I think in the past we have spent a lot of time digging into the ins and outs and biz, of business. But one thing that I'm really interested in hearing, especially in this period, is challenge and struggle. A lot of businesses right now are going to be suffering through quite significant challenges and as a result are going to be looking at different ways of surviving. So for you, what has been your most expensive lesson and what did you learn from it? How did you address it? And what lessons did you take away? Oh, wow. I think that's a, that's a very, very, very good question because I think for the most part, I think I've been saying how great we've done as a business, but you know, there's, there's no success without failure. And we've definitely had a fair bit of failure um, over the time. And one of, you know, for most people, COVID, um, COVID is the biggest biggest um challenges challenge they've faced um but i feel like we've just before covid we had a major major disaster which could have ended our business but we've managed to get over it and um it's 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 around streamlining streamlining and standardizing our product so for years we've been looking at uh mechanizing our production so actually having a production line where you have machinery doing the entire process and you only have uh, people kind of assisting the machinery as you go along, as opposed to our existing process where we just pretty much have people making the product by hand, right? And we've been looking at this ever since we started. And I guess six, six years in, we finally decide we have to do this because we feel like manpower is becoming a strain it's so difficult to find find em, em, employees and training can take a very long time because it's a niche niche market it's a niche product and it's a very demanding and labor intensive job we start at 4 4 a.m in the morning the first person gets in at 4 a.m so you know we spend a lot of hours standing and so we decided actually it's time to make this this step if we get machinery in, then we'd need less manpower. Uh, we can um, produce as much as we wanted. So we were going to go from, say, sort of 4,000 a day. And if we wanted to do double that amount or even triple that amount, because it's machinery, you can, as long as you've got the um, raw material, then you can run it through the machine. And then you get um, people to assist as you went along. Um, bear in mind, this is six years in. so. We, we, we got the loan from the bank. The bank was very pleased with the vision that I had uh, because I said this, I explained to them, this could be a step into another market where we're talking about looking at supermarkets. So wholesalers selling the product because in terms of compliance, having equipment like this would meet a lot of standards. Um, so we thought now is the time. And it was, it was during the time I, I made the order for the machine um, and it takes three months. So I made it in the middle of carnival. 
uh, of just just before carnival so it was going to take three months so the machine wasn't going to come until um november and it was near around the time when when my wife was supposed to give birth so it was going to be a stressful time regardless and i started talking to customers about the change and you know i think they didn't really understand what it meant really but they were looking forward to it because i was saying to them it's going to you know be able to give me a lot more products and you know, meet more demand and, and everything and standardization so it seemed perfect a perfect transition from handmade to um a mechanized production system um however my staff members were a bit fearful purely because they knew that people could lose their jobs um but the one thing i made sure i didn't do was fire anyone because i wasn't you know i just wanted to make sure that it would work the way we wanted it to and if we could move people around we'd move them around instead so the machine comes um after three months of waiting uh, major upgrades to the power in the building and um some investments in other machinery because we upgraded other machineries uh in our building or other equipments in line for this big machine to come in the machine comes in and we had a consultant that trained us for about three days on the machine so people were getting up to speed and even though i make don't make patties even i could operate the machine and if anything i was the main person operating it because um it was quite technical it was a touch screen computer screen and to control panel to, to to manage this machine however it was an absolute disaster um when it came to timing the production process over the years had become so lean and the guys had become so talented at what they they did the machine was no longer as fast as the people that were making the product um so that was the first problem we had it was taking a lot longer to make the product um the second problem that we we had we knew the product was going to be slightly smaller however there were just a lot more wastages in terms of the leftover dough we were having actually sadly even five times as, as much dough left over that we couldn't reuse and that was also another problem so we we're getting a lot more wastages the production process was actually taking a lot longer and then as soon as uh people started to get the product we had the complaints come in they don't want that product they want the one that they had before and neither the products the products too small and the end users are complaining people are losing 10% sale 15% even 25% sale in a day so people were saying they were willing to leave if we did, if we didn't go back so there I was um my wife had given birth so I had a newborn so I wasn't getting any sleep and going into work i was looking at this major investment that we had made that was actually running my business running my business down into the ground so um the only other, the only options i had was to to not use it because so after it, it was one of those situations where you fail fast two weeks in i just said to the guys we're going to have to stop using it they were happy because they could go back to their normal time and you know finish to finish making the product um a lot quicker but also i was saving a lot more money because combined with the wastage and the the loss of sale and pain for so much overtime like i said it was running the business um into the ground so i was left with this machine and i really had to call the company back in and this is a major company the the international company and we sat down had a big meeting and um 
in the end, they offered to uh, take the machine back you know, as a sign of goodwill because I'd, I'd buy other equipment from them. And they decided to take it back as well as refund me all the money that I paid minus the delivery costs and, and cleaning costs to clean the machinery. So um, that was actually my, one of my biggest failure. N- no learning um, or realizing how much, how, how valuable my niche was in terms of handmade product and how important it was to don't give the customer something they don't actually need. So there's, there's, there's a lot to take away from that. And I'm just unpacking it bit by bit. The, the, the first point that I'll, I'll highlight is something that you mentioned just now, which is the value of a handmade product. So has a lesson of this period been that you actually have quite a special niche in the handmade side of your business? Yeah, I don't think it's going to go away because people are so used to the product. You know, I didn't think look mattered that much, but it does, as it turns out. They want the product. You know, one customer said to me, even though I said, oh, the volume of the product is the same, so it's the same volume, but the shape of it makes it look smaller. And the customer says, well, I know you told me that, but when, when people walk into my shop, they buy with their eyes first. So people buy with their eyes first. And if they see something looking different, they don't want it. And that's, and that's one of the things I realized that, yeah, if we make it by hand and that's what people like, if, unless you're using a machine that makes it look exactly the same, then they, they, they won't buy it. And um, yeah, so that was a very valuable lesson. And it just meant that we had to rethink how we looked at our business in terms of, wanting to go and compete maybe at a high level in machinery because people who are using machinery and they're in a different market. But we knew that if we went into machinery, we'd lose one market. And this mm. was the market that was making us survive. So unless we already had contracts in place for a new market, there's no way we could uh, leave, you know, what was our customer base for something that we're unsure about. So it might be something to look at in the future if we can provide both but we had to resort to ensuring that the people that had grown a business over the past seven years, both employees and customers, we had to make sure we were providing for them. Um, So that was key. Um, I think you also mentioned um, in terms of COVID, uh, the impact of COVID. Cash flow for for most businesses has been interrupted. So we're we're no exception from that. Um, One of the key things is understanding the new demand. So that's something that even though I'm away, I'm having to learn about. And because the demand has changed, what what we've had to do, instead of, instead of being a business that you can always call up and we have products on hand because we know that the products are selling. So we have to manufacture five or six days a week. And so we always have products on the go. Now it's getting in touch with people beforehand knowing what people want and then make the product because we can't afford to have products sitting on us uh, just sitting in a in a in a cold room not being sold because we don't know when things could change again we we might go back on the strict lockdown if if the virus starts to spread again so we've had to adjust um 
we had to change how we how we we manufacture by looking at the demand first and then making the product as well as changing our delivery days so we now only deliver we deliver less days but we have to make it known each week things can change so we we'll send out a message at the at, at, you know like now we send out a message on a sunday to say uh, these are the days we're going to be operating this week and send your orders in and we'll get the, your products to you on these on these days um, and that, that's actually been useful for us because our business again becomes more structured in that way so that's been a benefit mm. but having to manufacture less of course changes the impact um, on our business and it's you know we've got some people on furlough um, some are not and how people work so people work on different days so we would normally we produce every day and our delivery driver would see the workers come see the workers when he goes in now it's more we work one day uh, or we make them fill in one day then the production guys come in on a different day and then the delivery guy come in comes in on a different day so we have less people in the building just to try and meet these standards um, that's been put in place for covid um, we we don't get people to sign for deliveries anymore. We just deliver products and give them their, their copy of the invoice. We try and get people to not pay in cash at all. Um, again, just to stop interaction between between you know in between different employees. So these are the things that we've we've kind of put in place and reduce um, people picking up picking up their orders. We've just tried to cancel that completely. Um, so yeah, there's there've definitely been some changes and I'm sure we're not the only business that that's having to do that, but we're just hoping that we're one of the businesses that will ride a weather through the storm and, and see it through to the end. Uh, well, I really hope that's true as well. And I think based on your approach so far, it definitely shows positive signs of being able to move fast, being able to be agile, think on your feet. And those are the qualities that I think, are going to see people through to success during this period. One characteristic, one quality that I would say seems to be a common theme amongst entrepreneurs is being willing to take risks and being willing to try new ideas and adjust and see what happens based on that idea. Now, you were willing to take a risk with the machine. You trialed something new, but very quickly you determined that this wasn't going to work. And as a result, you pivoted. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about that experience for you. So as soon as you realized that things weren't necessarily going to plan, what was your thought process and what immediate action did you take in order to transform your business into one that was starting to suffer to one that was thriving again? Uh well, the first thing you start to think about is whether or not this can actually work because change is a, is, can be challenging in, in, in business. So especially if we have a system that's working and everyone's used to it and they know the system and they know it works and they prefer that system, um, they're, not want, they're not necessarily going to want to move forward with something different because it's, it's the fear of the unknown. So um, while things were going wrong, the question I was asking myself is, what, what's the underlying factor and the underlying reason? Is it because 
we weren't skilled enough to use the equipment on our own? Is it because we needed to just continue um, or did we need to just continue and then over time customers will get used to it? Um, and if, 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 if it's not those things and it's purely um, the machine, it's just not good enough for what we do anymore, then what will be the cost of um, going back to what we did before? So going back to, you know, what, what, what I would see as maybe our competitive advantage, just retaining that and being very skilled in handmade products. And we had already taken out this loan. We had already paid this company um, all this money and we've already upgraded the power supply in the building. We've already bought these new other machine um, and equipments to go along with, with this new process. Um, what would that cost? And it was, it was a matter of convincing the company. And I think I did really well in convincing them that they should give me, give me this money back. And they did decide to refund us after about two and a half months. Um, and you asked about what I did immediately. What I had to do was drive around in person and speak to the main customers that were feeling the squeeze from this, from this change. I was asking them what complaints were they getting and do they think um, people will you know, come around to it? Um, and on top of that, please allow me time to fix the problem. Um, and that was something I hadn't done that for a long time because I, I, I hadn't had like, you know, high level of complaints from multiple, multiple um, customers. I just hadn't had that for a long time. And I thought, imagine we had this business, we've been going so well for so many years and people rely on this product. And all of a sudden, it, it seems that this I'm destroying my um, customer base, destroying their business, and making a lot of um, hungry people unhappy. So uh, I needed to change that very quickly. So I started to go around to people and, and showing them that I will fix this. Please don't, don't give up on us because you know, I, I know how to, to fix a problem. It's not the first time I've you know, been in, in, in a problem before. And I mentioned earlier on in the, in the podcast about um, compliance and things like that and finding um, staff members. And so I knew how to come out of a problem. And, and that's the one thing I knew I was good at. If we have a problem, I'll know how to come out of it. And once I'd weighed up my options, I decided to make a decision and make it quick. Um, it was a tough one because I really thought this was going to take our business to higher heights, a new level, you know, into a different direction. But I knew that all I had to do is, is forget that, that, that dream for now, that aspiration, get things back to how they were to make sure customers and my team were, were happy and the business was, was, you know, getting the revenue we're supposed to get and then focus on a new goal and aspiration afterwards. And that's exactly what I did. Which is not an easy thing to do at all. It requires humility. It requires being able to see the bigger picture. And it also requires just yeah, serious leadership in order to... And, sorry to cut you, but and also to, in terms of leadership, to stand in front of your team and said, we tried something, uh, it didn't work. And your 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 skill is worth a lot more than this machine and i had to i had to i had to do that and 
it was good to acknowledge them and they already knew that they, they were great but they also saw how difficult it was for me as well so they didn't think yeah they, they didn't think oh yes you sh- that's what should happen to you they were more like we're really sorry it didn't work out because we saw what you're trying to do you've been trying to you know ever since i went into this business i've always had a growth mindset both for the team and and for and for the business so i was always trying to develop them whether it's you know some of the equipment that we have in our building are the same same equipment if you went into Sainsbury's bakery you'd see the same same exact equipment and um I've always had this mindset to try and pump money, all the money back into the business to help it grow. And so as a result of that, my team were, you know, they were being trained in, in new ways and developing skills that they never had before. And also working with some of the, the, the best equipment they had and there was on the market. And so, you know, they were developing themselves as well. And, uh, you know, it was important for me to acknowledge that this path that I tried to go down in terms of growth didn't work out and it wasn't the end of the road it, it was just time to to just look on a different road even though I just started going down it really sobering um really powerful story and yeah I'm glad you made it to the other side I've I've really enjoyed this I think this has been um yeah very eye-opening as as I mentioned at the start uh, you and I are very close friends, but hearing your account of this story in detail has opened up so much more about it, but also provided some very powerful lessons that I'm going to take away from it. Um, Afalabi, what, what are your thoughts? What are your takeaways? It is definitely sobering. Um, it's a podcast which I'll have to really sit on for a while. Because listening to you, Mike, it really reiterates why there are certain characteristics of successful entrepreneurs. Um, I really appreciate the way that you were willing to fail fast. Um, I really appreciate the fact that you've acknowledged the the differences that you bring to the business compared to your business partner and how you work hand in hand. Um, He might be more of the purist in terms of really focused on the product, whilst you're really focused on the customer and the customer relationships. I really enjoyed hearing how you got on your bike again and went to go speak to those customers um, who are fellow business owners and asked them about their concerns and humbled yourself to say, okay, give me time, I will fix this. And you presented that back to your team. Um, It's it's incredible, especially because I know that three of us, maybe three, four years ago, discussed this plan, discussed the plan of bringing in this machine and seeing it come to fruition, but also seeing it end in a way that we didn't plan was very sobering. It helped me to realize that there are expensive lessons in business and that there are things which you might not necessarily have completely comprehended yet. I don't think any of us have comprehended just the value of a handmade product. One last thought from you, Mike. I'd like, to, I'd like you to, to have, a, have a moment to think about this, but if for the people listening, you could share one nugget of information. Maybe it's a motivator. Maybe it's a really important characteristic which has gotten you through some challenging times. What key message would you want somebody who's listening to this to take away about your journey, about success, about upscaling? Uh, yeah, you know, actually, it's interesting. That's a, I think that's a very, 
very good question in terms of uh, one key thing. And I, I think for business, the number one thing I think you have to have is, is commitment because when you're a business owner, you have to be, well, I definitely had this mindset. So I used to be the first one in, last one out, first one in, and that went on for years. So if we open at 4 a.m., well, I'll be there at 3.45 to let people in. Um, if we close that, if we close that five, I'll still be in the factory when everyone goes home and I'll either be looking at invoicing or taking orders or just thinking about what I can do to grow the business um, or, you know, creating partnerships. I was always thinking um, about what's, what's next, but to be able to do that, you have to stay committed to the course. So post-university, like you said, I, people are still going out and, and enjoying themselves. And I learned very quickly that um, I don't have this life because I, I, I went to work after a few nights out, uh, you know, when I just left uni um, on the weekend and I, because I was working Saturdays and Sundays. And uh, yeah, in a, in, a, in, a, in a couple of months, I realized I'm on a very different path. And as a result, I'm going to have to make a number of sacrifices because if I want this business to work, I have to stay committed to the cause no matter what. Um, and through the challenges, through the, through, you know, through the good times, it was just staying committed to what I was doing, especially when you're, you're looking at growth. In, able to, in order to grow, you have to um, deal, with a, deal with a lot of change. So whether it's changing how you produce or finding new uh, customer base, um, changing suppliers, which is something that I, I never touched on much today. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of change, but I had to just remember what my goals were um, and what I was trying to achieve and just staying committed um, right throughout. And, and each time when I got knocked by a challenge, I was resilient and, you know, just carried on no matter what. So commitment is, I think is one of the number one thing. If you're going to go off on your own and be a business owner, you have to be committed because you will face a lot of challenges. The rewards can be more than worth your while, but if you're not committed to it, you're just going to stop halfway or, you know, or just not do it at all. And business needs commitment. So for the people who needed to hear that today, there you are. And once again, Mike, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to delve back into this. And I think Afolabi is as well. Mike, thank you so much. Um, God bless you, man. For those who are listening right now, um, Mike is actually with us, um, even though he's currently in Jamaica with his wife and his daughter. So we really appreciate him taking this time out. Um, Mike, I really do want to get you on the show again to speak about... Um, failing fast, I think that's something really important for us to discuss in the future because it's important for people to know that failure does occur and the mindset around failure. And also around having a business partner, that relationship. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Your words, they have been extremely inspiring in terms of what could be done when you actually commit yourself. It's also reassuring to know that there is a science to this. You haven't done any of this purely by being 
just fixate on the products that you truly learn your industry and the best way to meet your customers needs so for me thank you ever so much i know thank you once again uh, from having me on the show i actually enjoyed the talk um just reminiscing on the journey and the things that i had to do from time to time to to get by um yeah i really enjoyed my time and you know getting to where i am now and it, yeah it was amazing so thank you for asking me to share it and i hope people will find some use in it like i said before and yeah i'd love to speak to you guys some other time or um on any other topic if you'd like so thank you this has been another episode of Expensive Lessons. Uh, thank you for listening. We hope you can join us again next week for some more golden nuggets from our lived experience. Have a great one. Thank you, everyone. Take care.